Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. So today is our last day of our mini series on abuse. And I am talking today with Dr. Elizabeth Jeglick. She's an internationally renowned expert, speaker, author, and researcher on topics related to sexual violence prevention and sex offender public policy. She is a licensed clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice at the City University of New York. She is the author of Protecting Your Children from Sexual Abuse and Sexual Violence, Evidence-Based Policy and Prevention. And Dr. Jeglick has published over 130 articles and book chapters as in, and is an associate editor of the journal Sexual Abuse. Dr. Jeglick's work is frequently quoted in the media. She's a nationally recognized public speaker and has been awarded the Faye Honey Knopp Award for her work preventing sexual violence. Now, I found Dr. Jeglick when she was quoted in the media as I was doing research for trying to find an expert that I wanted to come and talk to you guys about sexual coercion and marital rape. And I was reading all sorts of articles and her name kept coming up. So I stalked her <laughs> and I found her at John Jay and I sent her an email and she agreed to come on and have this conversation. So I'm super honored that she agreed to come on to talk about this really, really, really difficult, this difficult topic about sexual coercion, especially in intimate relationships. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Jeglick. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on, agreeing to come on to my podcast, totally sight unseen. <laughs> Full disclosure, I stalked you on the internet <laughs> and, I, and I reached out and I asked you to come on the podcast to talk about all of this stuff. So thank you for agreeing to do so. Well, thank you, Kate, for inviting me to talk about this really important topic. Thanks. So, all right, let's just dive in. What What is sexual coercion? So sexual coercion is any unwanted sexual activity that occurs after being pressured in non-physical ways. Hmm. Um, so it's basically any time that you are having sexual encounters that are not consensual in the sense that you do not are not an active and willing participant. And how does that differ from rape? So there's a very fine line between sexual coercion and sexual assault. So in sexual coercion, ultimately, you are feeling pressured, but you agree to engage in the behavior, even though you do not want to. Rape involves not giving consent, saying no, and the person still engages in sexual behavior, or they use force 
in order to to achieve sexual gratification. So it is it is a very fine line. So ultimately, in sexual coercion, even though you do not want to participate, it is not something that you wanting to engage in, you are still giving consent, albeit coerced consent. Okay. And where would you put, just out of curiosity, because I hear this a lot from my listeners and followers, where would you put penetration while unconscious? That is sexual assault. That is sexual assault. Yep. Okay. Just... For clarification, that, you know, I do a lot of educating about marital rape and um, that is that is what that is, right? So if you are asleep asleep, or you are under the influence of substances and you are not able to give consent, that is rape, whether you are in a marriage, a dating relationship, or it is a stranger at a party. Thank you for clarifying. I know that's, I mean, that's, that's hard for women to hear. Yes. Right. It took me, I was raped in college by my boyfriend, passed out drunk. And it literally took me until the Brock Turner case. And I was in college 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it took me until the Brock Turner case, which was, what was that? 2015, 16? For me to realize that I had been actually, that that was rape. Yes. And the recognition of that, and I wasn't, I'm not married to that person, right? Mm-hmm. But the recognition of that was really hard. Yeah. So can you sort of talk to like what it, when rape is occurring in a relationship, when se- when you are being sexually assaulted in your marriage, the, the thing that's supposed to be safe, mm-hmm. what does that do to someone's psychology? I think that can be very traumatizing. I mean, these are the people that are supposed to be, you know, your partners that you have agreed to be with in sickness or in health, and they are violating the basic tenets of that trusting relationship that you have. And I think that, you know, while in many states, not all states, uh, marital rape is is recognized as, as a crime, we still kind of feel that it is something that our spouses are entitled to, I think. And so whether, and and I think that's perpetuated even in media and movies, TV, that there are going to be times where you don't feel like having sexual relations with your partner. And if they pressure you enough or they kind of nag you enough, that that's just kind of your duty as their their partner to to engage in sex and and to, to give them what they want. And I think we're starting to recognize that that's not okay and that there are boundaries even within the context of marital relationships, dating relationships that that shouldn't be crossed. And, you know, if we really view these relationships as partnerships, that your partner should want you to be an active and willing participant in any sexual behavior. And any time that that does not occur, that should not be something that they want and that should not be forced on you. So it's it's interesting because I think this opens up I mean such a such a can of worms right about how how women relate to our own sexuality mm-hmm. what we've been taught about our own sexuality that if we want sex there's some you know we're sluts we're whores whatever and I guess it it goes into what you talk about when in terms of sexual scripts right so we're how women and men behave differently yes in sexual relationships. And when we first started talking, I was, I was reminded of like, you know, bodice rippers, like we're literally our, ro- our idea of these romance, romance novels yes. 
are actually predicated upon rape. Rape fantasies. Very often. Yes, exactly. Rape fantasies, right? So, so how does our own vision of our own sexuality and the way that we, the ways that we behave in, sexually in our lives, especially for women, how does that impact what we allow consent to or don't, frankly, <laughs> right? And, and I think even still today, we still have these sexual scripts where women are more submissive, men are more aggressive, that we are supposed to be more virginal, we have to have the men chase us. You know, we still, even in 2021, you know, in middle school, high school, the boys are still asking the girls at the dances, you know, it's not, not an egalitarian relationship. And I think that, you know, in order for women to really reclaim our power, it is really important to view any partnership that you have, whether it's a man or a woman, as an egalitarian relationship so that you are both equal partners. And that includes your sexuality. But we are taught that if women say, I want to be sexual or I want to engage in sexual behavior, that that somehow is not feminine, that that somehow takes away from you know, the, the whole dynamic and what a relationship is. And it could label us as somebody who is promiscuous. And so I think changing those societal and gender norms around sexual behavior and making women, putting them on an equal plane with men will, will help us to, to really empower us and to, to, to be equal partners in this and to recognize when we should only be having sexual relations when we want to have sexual relations and our partner wants to have sexual relations with us. And if we don't, if we're tired, if we're doing, you know, 70, 80% of the work around the house and that night you don't feel like doing it, it is not your responsibility to also then have to engage in sexual relations with your partner. Thank you. <laughs> right? Like, it's, it's like, it's real. We are exhausted. Women are exhausted because we're doing 70, 80% of the domestic labor. And so if we're tired at the end of the night, we don't feel like having sex. It's actually legitimate. Yeah. <laughs> It's more than legitimate, yes. right? If you at the end of the night, if you want to massage my feet, great. Well, I think that's also <laughs> an important point because there might be times where you know you don't feel like engaging in sexual relations. You are tired at the end of the night. You're lying down there, and your partner doesn't massage your feet. And as he starts to massage your feet, or she starts to massage your feet, you then start to feel like maybe I'm changing my mind. Maybe I do want to engage in sexual behavior, but that is you changing your mind. That is not them pressuring you. They're not massaging your feet as a quid pro quo. They're doing it because they care about you. They they want to help right. you. They want you to feel better. And if that makes you change your mind and makes you want to engage in sexual behavior, that is then your choice. And then you become a willing participant as opposed to them kind of kind of groping you, kissing you when you're kind of not in the mood and you're kind of turning away and they're kind of pulling you towards them. That is sexual coercion. Yes. And there, you know, I'm just reminded of girls. I feel like certainly from, you know, my, our generation, the Gen X that I am is we know how to do all the maneuvers, right? When a guy sort of puts his hand around, we know what to keep our elbows pressed in a little bit, you know, our shoulder forward to stop them. Right. And there is a way in which women feel constantly like their prey, mm -hmm. right? We are and we're constantly sort of feeling like we're fighting off advances. And if you want to rub my feet, but then your hand starts going up my leg, I immediately feel like prey, like yes. you're a predator and what you're, you're only rubbing my feet because you want to have sex with me, not because you love me and you actually want to rub mm -hmm. my feet. Right. And it's, that is, 
I think that's an exhaustion. That's another sort of emotional labor thing that we don't talk about enough is how, how much energy we expend sort of protecting ourselves. Yes. Right. And we see that even today, I mean, you know, what's going on in New York state with governor Cuomo is just mm. another example of crossing boundaries. And, you know, I'm just being affectionate. I didn't know that that was not appropriate. And so I think we do have this constant line that we ha- we have to follow. And I think we're learning about it. We know about sexual harassment in the workplace now, right? So we know what to, or generally. <laughs> we, well, apparently we don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because <laughs> Andrew Cuomo didn't didn't know he had other people doing his online sexual trainings for him. Clearly, did he really? <laughs> generally, I think it, it is commonly acknowledged what generally is acceptable and not acceptable yeah, in the workplace. Right. However, when we now take that to our personal relationships, we haven't really been taught about that. We haven't really been taught about boundaries within our romantic and personal relationships, and. I think that is something where we we are kind of recognizing that coercion does occur and and how it's it's kind of a, a dynamic and an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a strong correlation between using sexual coercive techniques and physical and vo- the sexual violence. Um, that doesn't mean to say that anybody who uses coercion is going to go and rape you or beat you, but there is a correlation between the two. So, and probably anyone in a domestic situation who does rape or is physically violent towards you uses some forms of coercive control. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't, it may not work the other way, but it certainly works that way, <laughs> that Absolutely. direction. Right. Absolutely. So, and, and in particular, I think this is really common in religious communities, right? Where it's seen as your duty as a wife. Yes. Look, can we talk about that? It's sure. Just so. And, and I think you have to also understand it within the context of the religious culture. So women within that culture also may feel that it is their duty, if that's their belief. So we cannot necessarily impose different views upon them. You know, like there is the, the belief that sex is only for procreation and that you are married. And if your husband wants to procreate, then it is your duty to procreate with him. If that is your belief and that is what you've consented to, then power to you. That is not everybody's belief. Um, and so if you, you know, even if you consider yourself to be a person, you know, of faith, that you are, you have similar beliefs, there still can be times where those situations feel coercive. So it really is about you, your values and what you consent to. So if that is something that is okay with you in your relationship, and that is something that you are consenting with too, that is your personal choice. Not everybody may share those values, but right, absolutely, absolutely, because that is your choice, right? That is what the ent- this entire conversation really comes down to: choice, absolutely, right? and consent. And if that is your choice, and I, I guess some t- sometimes you know I go a little further with this. I'm a little more radical with this, where I'm like, is it really your choice if the coerciveness is sort of in institutionalized? There's institutionalized yeah, coercion. Absolutely. Like, are you actually at choice? <laughs> Right. So eh, that's a whole other conversation. It is a whole other conversation. It is. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to be dismantling, you know, institutions that have existed for hundreds of years in, in one conversation. No, I did. I did have another podcast on on that. So we're 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 covered. Now <laughs> we can refer back to my conversation with um, Sarah McDougall on that. But so 
how does sexual coercion for, for people who are just sort of starting to mm, like, oh, huh, I wonder, what are some ways in which this shows up in relationships? What does it look like? It's more a feeling than I think, especially at a lower level. It's just right. you, mm-hmm. you know, you start to not enjoy sex anymore. You feel like it is your duty, your obligation, your sex drive is diminished. I mean, obviously that's normal with any, you know, woman in a relationship with young children, your sex drive is going to be diminished, but it's further diminished by the demands of your, your partner. Um, You know, you're no longer looking, you know, when they, when they go to touch you, it's kind of like, and then, you know, you're, you're, you're acquiescing or you feel like either duty bound, you feel like there's societal norms that require me to have sex three times a week. Otherwise I'm not normal or there's a, there's pressure from the partner to to engage in sexual behavior. And then, you know, at lower levels, it's more this feeling of, of duty, but at higher levels, you see more verbal coercion, more threats, more like, if you love me, if you don't give me this, then I will go somewhere else. So you start to see more of that verbal coercion. And then obviously at the extremes, there are se- severe threats and, and potentially physical coercion, which then crosses the line. Yes. And I'm thinking about sort of the difference, right? Because I think in some marriages, there is a general expectation that sex is part of the, (laughs) it's kind of part of the deal, right? And when you have younger children and you're more exhausted and your husband's like, hey, right? So in a healthy relationship, that would be something that would be discussed, maybe have, maybe go to therapy, right? This would be a, yeah, I know I want that too. I don't know what happened. I'm just tired, but I want to, right? And so there would be- Right. You're on the same page. You're a team. You're discussing this issue in your relationship together. Mm-hmm. You know, similarly, the female might have a higher sex drive or libido than the husband. The husband might be more tired. And, you know, you, you want to discuss these things and you make the decisions together. We're not always going to be, you know, wanting to have sexual relations. We might feel like, you know, we would like to have more, but we just don't feel that. And so, yes, we discuss it together. We work to solve that issue together. But when it becomes unilateral, when it becomes one person as the aggressor and the other person as the person retreating, then it doesn't become a partnership anymore. Then it becomes this issue of power control. And and that really takes away from the relationship as a whole, but also your your control over your body and your desire to to engage in sexual relations with that person. I mean, I think it's, it's, you'll see other areas of the relationship in which that is manifested as well. I don't think it's only manifested in the bedroom. Um, there's this power dynamic going on, but I think that you will also see it in the bedroom. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, the Center for Divorce Education. The Center for Divorce Education is an organization that provides separated parents with the tools and techniques necessary to navigate the difficult task of being a co-parent. They offer an online class called Children in Between which can be completed from home in around four hours. To sign up for the class, visit divorce-education.com. Anyone who is co-parenting can benefit from the class, even if if it isn't court-mandated. If only one parent takes the class, it will still be beneficial to the relationship. Nearly half a million parents have taken this class in all 50 states and three foreign countries. Results from surveys have reported that nine out of 10 parents say they would recommend children in between online to other parents. This course has been used and highly regarded by attorneys, judges, and clinical psychologists all over the nation. Sign up today on their website, divorce-education.com. 
one of the signs, right, is that we're not enjoying sex as much anymore. What happens to our bodies and our brains and our ability to enjoy sex when we continue to have sex that we don't want to have? There's like a something happens, right? A disconnect, right? Yeah. So sex is, is more like a, a cognitive activity, right? So, you know, you become aroused with your mind as opposed to, I mean, you can physically become aroused as well. But I mean, especially for women, it's largely, you know, emotional and cognitive. And so if you are doing this, it becomes something that is, becomes aversive, right? If you're forced or coerced into having sex when you don't want to have it, it, then your association, the, the sex becomes getting paired with these negative emotions. And the more that you have it, it's like a trauma, you know, in a sense. And so if you continue to have to do these kinds of behaviors when you don't want to, we do see, you know, women in coercive relationships exhibit symptoms of PTSD, depression, anxiety, irritability, all those things that go along with trauma that we see in those who experience sexual abuse. And so it is a, a form of abuse. Yes, it is. <laughs> so, so what are some, you know, we were talking about these sexual scripts. What are some, what are some other sexual scripts out there? I was in just, it's been circulating on Twitter. There's Pepe Le Pew. I don't know if you remember the cartoon. Sure, of course. <laughs> but he used to go after the, the female skunk and she clearly did not want to engage with him. And he would like lock the door and he would chase after her. And I think this is a really great one to, to bring to your children's attention and to talk about consent because it's done, you know, obviously for children. But talking about, you know, how that is not acceptable, why that is not consent and what you can do instead. Like what should Pepe Le Pew have done had he wanted to engage in a relationship or a friendship with this female skunk other than to chase after her and drag her around and lock her in places. And so we see that even like starting in childhood that we get to these kinds of things. And I, I was thinking the other day, the video for Baby It's Cold Outside. If you look at that video um, that was, again, circulating last year, again, it's kind of like the woman wants to leave and mm-hmm. the man is like preventing her from going. Yes. Again, we're seeing that kind of thing. That song was canceled a couple of years ago, I think. <laughs> yes. that. It's a bummer. It's a cute song, but not, not so so A lot of those teen movies that we, we grew up with, um, you know, you see the, the girl kind of, you know, sitting on the couch, the boy kind of leaning over, trying to touch her down her shirt and her pants. And she kind of giggles and pushes him away. It's probably she wants to engage in some kind of sexual activity with him. It's not clear, but he needs, in order for that to happen, he needs to kind of overcome this feigned resistance that she's giving. And so those are the kind of scripts that we, we perpetuate, that we teach our children. And so we're not teaching egalitarian relationships. And so, you know, we can't entirely blame men for all this because this is what they are learning. Right. So it is really our responsibility as adults raising young men and women to teach them what a consensual relationship looks like, how you get consent, what affirmative consent looks like, that consent, even if it's given at the onset, can change over the course of the interaction, that they have to keep asking for it. So all this discussion that we have in the media and with with young people about consent and affirmative consent now on college campuses is so relevant to this discussion of coercion. So what is what is affirmative consent? That is like yes and yes. <laughs> right. Means, yes, I am here. I want to do this. I am saying yes and I am enthusiastic. It is not just like okay, I'm not going to say anything and I'm going to go along with it. And I'm seeing more of this, you know, now in TV and the movies, like with the the male asking the woman, may I kiss you? 
we're seeing more of it. It's still not pervasive, but but I have seen it. And so you want to, that's what we want to teach our young people, that you need to ask, you need to give consent, both sides. And that once consent is given to one act, you need to ask, you know, is it okay if I, I touch you here? And is it okay if I touch you there? And, you know, the new thing is consent is sexy and you can do it in a sexy kind of way. It so is, by the way. <laughs> it so is. I, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I mean, it really is. I, I had an experience with a guy a couple of years ago. We were at a wedding in Mexico. So like, yeah. And he was asking for consent every step of the way. And it was the biggest turn on I think I'd ever had. And it was, it was that cognitive turn on, like I was so safe. And yes. because I was so safe, I was then able to relax mm-hmm. because I knew that I was safe and I was listened to at every step of the way. Absolutely. And, and I think if we make that the new norm, you know, the young people are not going to know anything differently. They're not going to know, you know, this whole cat and mouse game that we were, we grew up with. Yeah. And so it'll just take a, a lot of the ambiguity. You know, as I said, I think we, obviously the majority of sexual abuse is perpetrated by males on females and we, we always blame the males, but in some instances, I think, you know, part of it is society's fault because we don't teach them appropriately. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we do need to start teaching young men what consent looks like and, and what their role is and how they have to behave in relationships and holding them accountable um, and holding them accountable to their friends as well. Yes. So. It's interesting. I have, a, I have a 15 year old son and, you know, I have these conversations with him and sometimes he's like, like, yeah, duh, mom. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, great. Like, these are the conversations that that he has. And he feels like he's like, anything else is kind of gross. That's awful. That's, you know, that's rapey. That's, and I'm like, yeah, yeah exactly. Good. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> right. Recognize that. Yes. Absolutely. Well, we started these conversations, you know, speaking of the movies that we grew up on, I, I'm terrible at remembering movies and like the details of movies. And so I was super excited to show him 16 Candles. <laughs> And we're watching the movie and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, this movie is so rapey. The whole movie from like start to finish, all of them. (laughs) And I, you know, and I was explaining it to him and he was like, yeah, that was really weird. (laughs) So we've we've been showing our children some of these comedy movies from like the 1980s and 90s that we used to enjoy. And we had these very fond memories of them and just the sexualization of women and the depiction of relationships. And, and, and you're right. There is a lot of like, non-consensual sexuality in it. I'm like, how did we ever think that was okay? Yeah. It's amazing. And do your kids when they're watching it, are they sort of like, Ooh, or, yeah. I mean, they, obviously they really your don't. children, right? they're, they're, they're a little younger. I mean, my oldest is still 12, but mm-hmm. they don't really understand it. They, they don't think it's funny at all. They're like, why is she dressed like that? Why is, yeah. So I'm glad we are making progress, even if it doesn't always feel like it on a daily basis. (laughs) Right. I mean, it really, it's hard because we hear these stories from adults, but when we talk to children, they're far more, it's far more sort of misaligned for them. And that's, that's wonderful. I mean, we obviously have pretty far to go still, but all right. So if a woman is listening to this right now and she's starting to realize that she's experiencing sexual coercion in her marriage, or if she knows that she's knew that she was before this podcast, what should she do? Again, you know, you have to really do some reflection. Again, some of it could be just 
you can go to therapy, you can discuss this, and this can be something that you can work out together if your partner is willing to engage with you. If this is something that is emblematic of a larger power and control dynamic in your relationship that is becoming abusive and your partner is not willing to engage with you, then that suggests that this might not be a healthy place for you to be. And you know, then you need to consider and weigh the pros and cons and consider your next steps. Yeah. And I think that one of the the important things also to to say is that if this is emblematic of an overarching theme of abuse and control, coercive control is one of the sort of like the sort of linchpin of of domestic violence and and abuse and all of those things. So that's not someone you should go to therapy with because that can be very dangerous, right? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So again, you, you, are, you know, I'm not living in anybody's relationship. You are the one who understands the dynamics within your relationship. But yes, if, if there is abuse and that coercive control that is pervasive in your relationship, that lines are being crossed, that you don't feel safe, that, that case, it is not recommended that you go to therapy and try to work it out. I mean, some people do. Um, you know, a lot of people who are not ready to leave relationships do go to counseling and they're counseling for people who, you know, engage in domestic violence and they decide to stay together. Again, it's a personal choice, but you have to be careful because of these dynamics. You know, it is very hard to change this pattern of behavior. Yeah. And I think that a lot of times one of the things that's, is that a therapeutic setting can exacerbate these abusive situations, right? Because they can, there's manipulation. They're, they're not coming to therapy from yes. a, like an honest and open sure. perspective, wanting to create healing. They're actually, you know, abusers are wanting to create more control. Absolutely. Well, the good thing is often in a therapeutic situation, the therapist is familiar with those dynamics. And it is often good to, in addition to going to couples therapy, to also seek individual counseling. And so that can be very helpful in in teasing apart some of what happens. But I think, you know, good family and marriage counselors will recognize those dynamics and they will help the partner stay safe and will recognize that where the relationship is headed. And so, but again, I think also having somebody to support you separately from that therapeutic interaction as a couple can be very useful as well. Yeah. So we talk, we've talked a little bit about teaching our children to have healthy sexual relations. You've written a book about this. Yeah. (laughs) So tell us, can you tell us just a little bit about sort of how we can teach our children to have healthy sexual relationships? The, the key thing is really just being open and honest and talking with them from like birth onwards. Mm. We talk about like starting to label genitalia by their appropriate names when they are one and two, not having sexuality being a shameful topic, because I think that's what, you know, so many girls are taught that their sexuality is shameful. And that's what, you know, oftentimes if abuse happens, they, they're, they feel like it's somehow their fault. They don't feel comfortable sharing that somebody violated their boundaries And I think, you know, really empowering young women and teaching young men and just having these conversations. And like I gave you the example of the Pepe Le Pew um, cartoon, you know, something like that. You bring your kids and you you show it to them and you say, you know, what did you think about watching that? What What do you think that that female skunk was thinking? You know, how could he have done that differently? So we want them to start critically thinking about these situations 
you have teens, like talking about the Cuomo situation. What did he do? Why is that wrong? How would you have handled it? What do you, what advice would you have given to, to a woman in that situation? And so I think the more that we, you know, have these open and honest conversations, the easier it will be for them to talk to us. We know, you know, I think parents are scared to talk about sex because there's this there's stigma and we think that if we talk to our kids about sex they're going to start having sex but that it's actually the reverse kids who have open dialogues with their parents about sexuality actually delay sexual out their sex their first sexual encounter they are less likely to become pregnant as teenagers and they are more likely to have healthy sexual lives and all of that is intertwined with sexual violence prevention because the more we are empowered and the more we are aware of our boundaries the less likely we are to, you know, have those boundaries violated and we are more able to kind of protect ourselves and also seek out healthy relationships. Amen. <laughs> I mean, that's just such a, that would be such a, a, a beautiful ideal world, I think, especially for women. I just think that I think so many women are, and probably my, myself included, really are not living up to our sexual potential, right? <laughs> like, because of the layers of trauma or the the amount of time we spend and have spent shutting it down, whether it's shutting it down from others or within ourselves or right. And like sex could be really amazing and cool if we had, if we have felt safe all along. Yes. Absolutely. Right. Yep. Feel kind of gypped. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's still the second half of life. There's still, that's right. That's right. There is someday when we're out of quarantine, I may have sex again. <laughs> so thank you so much for all of this. I, I just, I think it's such a rich and important conversation. Is there anything else that you feel like we haven't covered when it comes to sexual coercion, especially in, in marriage and intimate relationships? I think really just being aware really trusting yourself and your gut. I mean, I think you are the best source to determine whether something feels right to you. And you want to examine your relationship again from that egalitarian perspective. And I think making sure that we as women are are getting our needs met, that our partners are listening to us, and that you know we are thinking about the next generation and how our behavior can also influence them because your kids are watching you. And the way that you are interacting with your partner and in your relationship, that is how they are learning because we don't teach kids relationships in school, right? We don't teach them how to date, how to find a healthy relationship. They learn that from us. And so you are a role model for your children. And so they see how you handle these situations, how you and your partner engage with one another. And so the more that you understand that you are entitled to an egalitarian relationship, you are entitled to say yes, you're entitled to say no, and that should be respected. That is what they are going to learn. And that's what this next generation is bringing forth. And hopefully your son and my kids are all going to lead us to a world that is free of sexual violence. I hope so. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for coming on and sharing your immense wisdom. And so where can people find you and find your book and all of the things and read all that you've put out into the world, which is a lot. Um, my books are available on Amazon and I have a website, elizabethjeglick.com. And I am also a professor at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, um, where I conduct research on sexual violence prevention. So I can also be contacted there as well. That's how I gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I so appreciate this conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me, Kate. I think this is so important and I, I'm glad that 
was able to share with, with your, your audience today. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.